Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind. That is the mind of Christ. And on today's show, we're going to be taking a look at the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 27 of Monastic Vows. And to help us be of the one mind with Christ on this article, we have our cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians, layman Peter Slayton, Pastor Peter Ill, and Pastor Timothy Apple and myself, Pastor Sean Smith. And to remind you, we are a call-in show. You can call in and ask your questions, uh, especially as we get into this monastic vows. Some may think that this doesn't even play out in the church anymore. We'll we'll talk about that and try to address some of that as well on the show today. Uh, and also probably next week we'll be covering this article yet. There's a few pages on it. But uh, you can interact with us. And to give us that information, because I am always terrible at remembering what it is, I don't know why I cannot do this, but Pastor Ill will be our guy giving us the information. You can call in and talk to us at 1-800-730-2727. That is 1-800-730-2727. Or you can reach us by sending us an email at kfuo at kfuo.org. Or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at KFUO Radio. All right. Thank you. That sounded so professional, like like you could do it like... You know, on, on Fox Sports. I wanted to say, like, come on down after that. I mean, I know. Yeah, or, or, yeah, like a, a you know, <laughs> midday TV show. And a or new car. Woo! Uh, oh, well, let's not get crazy. We have a limited budget here. Yeah, this is monastic matters. vows. We're talking about monasticism. Yeah. You don't get we're new gonna, cars. Vows of poverty. Well, that's, that's one of the challenges that we're going to talk about, <laughs> actually. Ooh, yes. Oh, thanks for saving it and bringing it back here. Yes, indeed. But uh, to kind of set it up here a little bit, though, uh, what is the deal with this? I mean, so Luther himself was an Augustinian monk, as well as, uh, you know, several others that were involved in the Reformation. Uh, You might even maybe say that the Reformation was born out of the monasteries themselves. And so is this just the Lutherans with an axe to grind against what they kind of came out of? Or, or what's, what's the deal going on with this? Anybody want to kind of take there for a minute, just kind of set up, why, why, why are we talking about monastic vows in terms of the confession of the church of who Christ is? How does this play into our confession? Anyone just go ahead and jump in there. Monastic vows really became an issue because the Roman Catholic Church was telling people that you could have a higher level of spirituality and you could be a better Christian if you were in a monastery or a convent as a monk or a nun, but that being a quote-unquote regular Christian wasn't really enough. Part of that was because kings were actually paying monks and nuns to pray for them and to pray for the country instead of having the focus on Christians who would pray for the king and who would continue to be good farmers and peasants and wagon makers and all the other things that needed doing. And so instead of doing just 
everything that God had called them to do, these were people who were told they could be better Christians, kind of super Christians, by doing other things. It's it's simply another example of how the adversaries were replacing the gospel with something that you do. I mean, it's you don't need. I mean, Jesus is nice, but if you really want to be saved, here's here's a way you can do it. Yeah, it comes to that question of how do you how do you please God? Do you do you please God by the things you do? And if so, then the monasticism is going to be something that's very appealing. But if if like the Lutherans, you you believe that you are pleasing to God on the on account of what Christ has done, the monasticism's monasticism is going to be one of the abuses, and that's what we'll see in this article. Yeah, so I guess then it really comes down to the the point that we've kind of driven home over and over again is, you know, it, it, it really is about the gospel. And this is just another one of those instances where the doctrine, the theology of the adversaries, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, who the Lutherans have, have been separated from now, that's what was going on in the Reformation, uh, their doctrine stands against the gospel. And, and uh, Pastor Hill, in, in our uh, pre-show notes and so forth, I think you made a comment. I had given the working show title, Monasticism is Contrary to the Gospel, and, and Pastor Hill, you rightly kind of called that out. And, and, and I think that that's helpful uh, to understand that it's not even the essence of monasticism itself that's contrary to the gospel. It's the doctrine of it. And I think you guys did all did a good job on hitting on that point that it's it's uh, this this idea that really your works can supplant the gospel, which is something that we have covered in almost every single article. I mean, it all kind of hinges around this uh, and comes back to, again, that Article 4 of justification, of understanding that Christ is our righteousness. That's the gospel, and and everything else flows forth from that. But anything else that takes that place, well, we kind of get on a wrong starting place. We don't start with Christ. We start with ourselves or, or some sort of work. So with, with that little setup, then, let's go ahead and also take note of the editor's note um, that we have in the Concordia Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord. Uh, this one is the um, second edition of that, available through CPH. But uh, I, I think this helpful editor's note uh, really kind of sets it up well for us. So I'm just going to go ahead and read that. The pontifical confutation, as one would have expected, rejects the Augsburg Confession's position on monasticism. Melanchthon's additional comments explain the biblical reasons why Lutheranism does not and cannot condone or support the view that monasticism is a higher calling than other vocations. The key point, again, is the Roman assertion that monasticism and the practices, promises, and customs associated with it are means by which people can merit God's grace and forgiveness. That's going to be really key for the point that we make here. That, that's me interjecting in the note there. Lutheranism restored to the church a proper regard for how men and women should, can, and do serve God in all the various callings and situations in life. And here it also makes a note that uh, this this can take us back to Augsburg Confession 25. I would also say this takes us back to Article 15, Human Traditions in the Church, and I should have made a note of this, uh, but uh, the the article... <clears throat> Oh, it's Article 23, I think, right, of the marriage of priests. Uh, that will tie into this as well. And so, again, you'll see these kind of connections going on in there. Uh, any notes on that editor's notes in setting up this uh, brothers on the panel? I don't have anything on those notes, but there's one other thing that, as far as historical context, I think it's really helpful to point out. And that is within many of these families of medieval Europe— 
any uh, daughters or subsequent sons uh, who weren't the firstborn might be put into a monastery or a convent as a financially secure place for them to live and to be cared for without needing to pay, say, a, a dowry or a bride price and without trying to uh, not setting them up to uh, kind of horn in on the family inheritance. And so in a lot of places, this was used as a place to uh, have your uh, additional children go uh, and serve the church and do something holy, but also to do so in a kind of a cash-controlled kind of a way. And that's part of the system that was being abused. That's something that we're going to be pointing out as we go through this article as well. I think you make a helpful point there, too, in kind of calling it a system. Uh, it is a system that has been devised, and, and sometimes we, we play too much into this line of thinking, but it, it really became an institution of things with money behind it and things. And you'll see this pretty early on that uh, when all of this system, this, this institution is built up around it and it has money tied in with it, uh, then it's it's helpful to know that historical context of how that came about because then when people talk against it especially in what it has developed into uh, it can get quite visceral and we'll see that pretty early on so thanks for that historical context to give us that there also i want to make a note on the uh, the uh, editor's note it begins there the pontifical confutation as one would have expected rejects the augsburg confessions position of monasticism we've talked about this several times on the show but it always bears repeating so as we have new listeners join the show and just so that we kind of continually remind ourselves this is the order of things that uh, uh, came about in the Reformation is that the Lutherans presented the Augsburg Confession at the Diet of Augsburg and that was their confession of what they believe teach and confess in the Lutheran churches and then the Roman Catholics came back with their confutation. That's what's referenced here is the pontifical confutation, the, the confutation of the pontiff, the, the, the uh, pope. And so this is their response to the Lutheran's Augsburg Confession. And then the apology, which means defense of, uh, of the Augsburg Confession, we defended, no, this is really what we believe and this is why. And so you see this back and forth nature of this is what we said in the Augsburg Confession. You responded in the confutation, but we're going to respond to your confutation now and, and reassert and even talk to some of those points brought up into the confutation. And you'll see that especially in this article. Uh, they reference the confutation and things said in the confutation, maybe more than we've seen in several of the last uh, articles here in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. So I wanted to make that note, but also then taking us back to the Augsburg Confession itself. Um, Pastor Apple, I'm going to throw this to you so you can get your thinking hat on, but uh, kind of give us a brief summary of what, what was the main point made there in the Augsburg Confession, that when we were presenting the Lutheran Confession of the Faith, what, what was sort of the main thing that the Lutherans were presenting back there in the Augsburg Confession itself? When you take a look at the Augsburg Confession and the, the same article on monastic vows, I, I think the best way to, to summarize it and to, to summarize it in a, a positive way as to what we believe um, is that a good work is something that God commands. Um, so whenever we have a command from God to do something, we know that it's a good thing to do, um, not because we invented it, but because he's given it to us. It, since it comes from him, it must be good. And since that is true, then the good works that we would invent 
uh, no matter how wonderful or pleasing they might seem in the eyes of the world or how much attention they might draw, uh, those works that we would invent are not the good works that God would have us do. In particular, when we would say that those good works uh, bring us uh, justification before God, when we're trying to use our own works to earn favor in God's sight, to be pleasing to him, then the works that, that we invent are, are by no means good, but actually lead us farther away from him. Um, so if I had to summarize kind of what we've said at the beginning of, of what is the what's going on here with monasticism, that's the way I'd, I'd put it. Good works are those that God has given, not the ones we invent for ourselves. I think that's a really helpful summary. I'm going to tag on there, too, uh, kind of four errors that uh, are also um, uh pretty much cited there as to these, this is the reason that we've included this article, uh, in our Augsburg confession. And they cite that, uh, that the, the Roman Catholic church, uh, was giving the, uh, teaching that vows justify people before God, that vows offer perfection, that vows are the way to fulfill the commands of God in the church and that vows are meritorious beyond what God demands. And so that was kind of their, their four errors that were being taught in the doctrine, the theology of monastic practice in the Roman Catholic church and, and would certainly fall under what you right, rightfully summarize there, Pastor Apple, as, you know, those, those are things that we invent and are really quite contrary to the gospel. And that's, you know, what we were talking about. It's the doctrine, the theology that it's at work that is really quite contrary to the gospel there. So yeah, great, great summary. All right. Well, I think we've set up the article quite well. Let's go ahead and dig in. Uh, we've got several pages of this and let's see how much we can get through on this, on this uh, first day here. Layman Slayton, I'm going to call on you to be my reader here. All right. Well, my, my one comment was this one should almost start with once upon a time, there, there was a monk. <laughs> As I started reading this, I was like, You, you oh, can add that it's, in. It's, it's story the reader's time. license. Yeah, it's yeah. story time with Papa Melanchthon. Okay. <laughs> Starting at uh, line one. To our knowledge, there was a monk named John Hilton in the Thuringian town of Eisenach. Thirty years ago, he was thrown into prison by his religious order because he had condemned certain scandalous abuses. We have seen his writings, which clearly explain the nature of his doctrine. Those who knew him declare that he was mild in his old age, and serious indeed, but not gloomy. He predicted many things, some of which have already happened. Others still seem close at hand, but we do not want to repeat them, lest it may be inferred that they are told either from hatred toward one, or from preference toward another. Finally, either because of his age or the foulness of the prison, he became ill. He sent for the guard to tell him of his sickness, inflamed with inflamed with pharisaic hatred the guard began to rebuke the man harshly because of his kind of doctrine which seemed to interfere with the work of the kitchen uh, interesting <laughs> don't mess with the food that's that's my side commentary without mentioning his sickness hilton said with a sigh that he was patiently bearing these injuries for christ's sake since he had neither written nor taught anything that could undermine the monastic life but had only criticized some well-known abuses Another one, he said, will come in A.D. 1516. He will destroy you, and you will be unable to resist him. Later, his friends found this very prediction about the declining influence of the monastic orders and the very date written in his surviving commentaries dealing with certain passages of Daniel. The outcome will show how much emphasis should be given to this declaration. 
Yet there are other signs that threaten a change in the monk's power, no less certain than oracles. It is clear how much hypocrisy, ambition, and greed there are in the monasteries, how much ignorance and cruelty exists among all the unlearned, what pride there is in their sermons, and how they continually create new ways of making money. There are other faults, which we do not care to mention. Monasteries were schools for Christian instruction. Now they have deteriorated, as though from a golden age to an iron age. Or, as Plato says, the cube deteriorates into bad harmonies bringing destruction. All the most wealthy monasteries support only a lazy crowd, which gorges, gorges itself upon the public alms of the church. Christ, however, teaches that the salt that has lost its savor should be cast out and be trodden underfoot. Matthew 5.13 By such morals the monks are singing their own fate, a requiem, and it will soon be over with them. Now another sign is added, because in many places they are the instigators of the death of good men, no doubt God will soon avenge these murders. Certainly, we do not accuse every one of them. For here and there, some good men in the monasteries decide fairly about human and factitious services, as some writers call them, and do not approve the cruelty exercised by the hypocrites among them. Thank you. That that was really quite an excellent job of kind of giving us that story time feel to it, too. <laughs> I, I, I commend you for that. Uh, I, I was just like... It's a, completely different, I mean, yeah. it's a completely different kind of prose from everything else we've been reading. It's just striking in that sense. It, it really is. And, and well, talk about that. Why, why do you think Melanchthon kind of begins with this story here? And I don't want to go too in-depth with it, but what, what, what are your thoughts there? I mean, my, I, like you said, it, he's laying out the abuses. So in past articles, it's kind of like, here's the bullet points of the different abuses. It's like this time he's taking the rhetorical tactic of, look, here's a person that a lot of people probably know and have heard of, and this person actually talked about these problems here within our own lifetime. We're aware of this. Let me tell you about this person, what he said, and how some of his warnings have actually come to pass. I mean, we all, maybe it's just a human thing that we tend to resonate with that kind of an example, and so Melanchthon's maybe trying to <laughs> emphasize it that way. And the way he sets it up, kind of that uh, story time with Papa Melanchthon, as we've been talking about it. Uh, th so there was this monk, and and he was critical of the abuses of, of the monastic system, and this is known. Uh, but he's able to kind of low-key it and kind of soft-pedal the the opposition of the abuses without talking about any of the number of other people who had also been talking about the abuses of the monastic system that would have really gotten people's dander up. There, all through the apology, Melanchthon is clear, Melanchthon is solid in what he's saying, but he's also trying to win over the brothers and sisters of the Roman Catholic Church. He's not trying to insult them, and he takes kind of this, this gentle approach of, let me tell you a story in order to bring them alongside and along with him of, look, we can all recognize that there are a lot of people who seem to think that there's issues with the monastic system. Let's talk about it like grown-ups and not, not necessarily yell at each other. Right. I think this particular story that he includes as well is, is a reminder that it's a problem that's been talked about and it's not going away. You know, th this, this monk, um, Hilton, 
made the, you know, the he, he said, look, there's going to come somebody else that's going to do something later and it's going to be worse for you. So I, I think this particular story then in, invites the the Roman Catholics to, to say, we've dealt with this in the past and the people who bring it up say it's not going to go away until we fix the problem. Let's take a look at it. Let's see how we can correct these abuses and and come in line with the gospel. And, and Melanchthon uses that story, I think, quite well then um, for as a part of his rhetoric here. And I, I think he also is, is essentially just talking about the crumbling of an institution, right? Uh, I mean, he, he's just pointing out, look, others are showing you that it's crumbling under its own weight. It's kind of become something that it never was. And I, and I like how he takes us back to, and, and we talked about this just very briefly in the setup, was, you know, man, the idea of monasticism itself is maybe not necessarily all that bad. As a matter of fact, it's something we would probably commend, especially as it was schools for Christian instruction. That's how they began. And, and you know, especially in, in forming the body in, in, in a religious way of life, in a pious way of life, um, you know, and, and forming a Christian community. Uh, you know, the, there was a popular book um, uh, recently, shoot, what was it? The, the Benedict Option, that's what it was. Uh, who wrote that? Someone help me out. Rod Dreher. Oh, that's Dreher. Rod Dreher. That's it. Thank you. My brain was failing on me. But, uh, and, and essentially that's what he's talking about is returning to this idea of this, this is how we live in Christian community and are very intentional about this. And it flows forth from God's encouragement to us and his word and, and things. But it wasn't a return to the monastic idea of what it was in the middle ages at the time of the reformation, because there it was just, it had evolved into something different and it was an institution crumbling under its own weight. And so uh, I think they're pointing out, look, there are others that have been pointing out how it is crumbling, how it is contrary to the gospel. And you've really treated them badly. Uh, Sometimes I think of, you know, what sometimes unfortunately happens in in all denominations. uh, But, uh, you know, where there's a pastor who's being faithful and certainly, you know, uh, trying to encourage faithfulness in his congregation. And they sometimes will treat them shamefully and fire them. And and, and then it kind of creates a lot of issues for that congregation sometimes. And sometimes it's helpful for someone else to come along and say, look, do you realize you're crumbling under your own weight of what you're doing to yourself here? Let's get back to the gospel and a right understanding and right living according to that. And so I think that he's he's framing it, and I like how you say he's using a rhetorical device to, to win them over here and, and, and basically just tell it as a story, which is a stark contrast from really how they uh, come at it from all of the other um, articles in the uh, uh Augsburg Confession and Apology of the Augsburg Confession. I'm still expecting him to get snarky later on, though, as, as we get oh, into this. Oh, he does. He, he can't <laughs> hold this tone forever. Yeah. He certainly does not. Uh, any, any other notes uh, there before we do move on? I, I love, I do, I mean, there's a little bit of snark here already. I mean, you know, he says, you know, but such morals and monks are singing their own fate of requiem, and it will soon be over with that. I mean, he, he's already kind of getting there, but it'll it'll certainly get more heavy-handed for sure. I, I just think it's interesting. I commented as I was reading slightly that the guard was upset because whatever this guy was teaching was messing with the work of the kitchen. It's like, dude. You're messing with my meal time. Stop it. And I'm going to allow you to die because you've messed with my meal time. How bad does somebody's idolatry have to be that they're willing to allow somebody else to die for the sake of their own idol? And in this case, it appeared his idol was his belly. I mean, that's the commentary on the state of affairs of the abuses just in that one sentence alone. It speaks volumes. 
Yeah, and we don't really have more information about that. I mean, what were were monks kind of running the kitchen for this prison? I, I I tried to look into this a little bit and see what was behind that, but I didn't really find much, and and so we just kind of have the plain words. But but yeah, I. And I don't, again, I don't think that we're all that different because I, I mentioned what sometimes happens in congregations and so forth. I mean, isn't it strange the, the, the idols that we have? Well, it will always lead to destruction yeah. of the idol, death, right? That, uh, that probably if, should if have been my it, actual point is that we all are, have idols of this nature. <laughs> and we're all actually that bad. Yeah. We just don't like to recognize it. And be really careful before you move the ladles in the church kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> right. That seems like there's a story there. Did you move the ladles once, Pastor Ill? I didn't. No. No. <laughs> just, just be really careful around the kitchen. Let the LWML ladies and others of the congregation rightly order these things, and just it, it'll go well for us, right? Indeed. Well, with that, how about we just go ahead and take a break? Grab a snack from the kitchen if you want, but just don't mess with anything. And please come right on back. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for me. Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. The story of Worldwide KFUO is a tale of technology. Radio was new in 1924 when KFUO was born to serve Christ the Savior. Now, KFUO is still finding new broadcast technologies so we can spread the gospel to the world via the web, smartphones, tablets, and new intelligent speaker devices. And when the next big thing is unveiled, we'll be there too. Broadcasting the good news at the forefront of technology. We are Worldwide KFUO. What is it that you want to share with us? Call the KFUO comment line at 314-996-1542. Tell us what we're doing right, wrong, or just leave a message with your thoughts on why KFUO is important to you. What would you like to hear on KFUO to make your listening experience better? You can call us anytime at 314-996-1542. Thank you for listening and sharing your thoughts with KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. And welcome back to Concord Matters, that show where we seek to be of one mind, the mind of Christ. And today we continue talking about 
Augsburg, Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 27 of Monastic Vows. And uh, we've made it through the first eight paragraphs of it so far. We'll be picking up with paragraph nine here to help us do this as our panel, our cohort of Christ Confessing Concordians, layman Peter Slayton, Pastor Peter Ill, Pastor Timothy Apple, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith. And Pastor Ill is going to go ahead and give you the information for how you can call in and interact with us via the different mediums. We would love to talk with you. You can talk with us on the phone at 1-800-730-2727, 1-800-730-2727. You can send us an email at kfuo at kfuo.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at KFUO Radio. And a new CD nut car or something if you interact, right? <laughs> no. We can, can, we can we play Plinko? Well, as long Plinko's as we don't define favorite. what kind of car it is, we could give like micro machines or matchbox cars or something. <laughs> mm, those are worth some money, though. <laughs> Depends on the model. <laughs> okay, I actually have a question for you, yeah, Pastor, please do. As, as we head into this one, because as, as I was reading this and came across, you know, story time with Papa Melanchthon, there's a phrase in here that stuck out to me, and there's two questions that I have about it. So, right on paragraph three, where they're quoting Hilton, where he says, another one, he said, will come in AD 1516. He will destroy you, and you will be unable to resist him. So, I read that, and instantly my mind thinks, oh, okay, so is this guy actually, like, prophesying, you kind of like the predicting the future kind of thing. And you could say, hey, he might be talking about Martin Luther because that's pretty close to 1517 and the 95 Theses. But either way, Luther is around and starting to ask his questions and stuff by that time. And there, because this is in the Book of Concord, we're kind of saying, well, that's this is okay, we're holding to this, and because we believe everything the Book of Concord says, we're totally okay with prophecy happening. So my two questions are, is that what's actually going on here, and is that how we use the Book of Concord? Because I've seen quotes kind of and examples kind of lifted and used in that way. I'll throw that to Pastor Apple. <laughs> I kind of figured that was coming. <laughs> Well, to to go with the, I I don't think that because Melanchthon includes that particular example that that somehow like when we when we pledge to you know to we make confessional subscription that these are are a true exposition of the Word of God that that binds us as as pastors or as congregations um, in the synod to say that like prophecy still happens or something like that. I, I think rather Melanchthon, as we as we had in our discussion earlier, is using it as a, a rhetorical device rather than suggesting that this guy is, is perhaps some kind of a prophet. Now, I, I do think that the year, perhaps he throws this one in in particular because that year is close to 1517, and, and it does bring to mind Martin Luther, but not to the, not to the point that, that Melanchthon would be suggesting that Hilton is a, a prophet of some kind, um, or, or to the effect that that when we say we pledge to teach according to these confessions, that we're saying, you know, this kind of prophecy does and and can happen, and and we are still trying to do it today, or something like that. This would be one of those uh, just examples that's in there, but it's not binding upon us. Like, um, you know, when uh, what's the example of like um, 
garlic. There's something about garlic, garlic juice, demagnetizing yeah. right. magnets or something. Right, that same kind of thing where where we're not by by binding ourselves to these confessions, we're not saying that that's true science necessarily, um, but rather what is it? What is the whole doctrine that it's teaching? That's what we're binding ourselves to. Does that help? It it does, but it still leaves me wondering. Okay, how do you know when? that's the case and when that's not the case i guess that's the confusing part as as we're going through is this simply a matter of being educated on when that's the case and when it's not or is there some way we can actually tell it's a hermeneutic question if i'm going to use a big word (laughs) (laughs) well i mean so so to me it seems rather clear that this is being used as as we talked about as a rhetorical device they're they're using it to set up the story to present their theology and they're in no way saying that our theology is what he has written on Daniel and Revelation and and his other works or or even they're not even I mean there's just nothing in the language that they're using to say that they're they're even pinpointing this as and see this has been fulfilled now with what the Lutherans or what Luther did and what the Lutherans are doing um, th- there's just nothing in the language of how it's written that directs me to that and so uh, again I, I would just say it, it seems rather obvious when you understand how language works uh, that when we're making a confession of our faith this is what we believe on the basis of scripture that is what we bind ourselves to but anything to set that up i'm not i'm not so sure that uh you know we we are what, what's the words i'm looking for here well we're not bound by that and, and it's not even that so sure but just you know setting it up uh is not bi- binding upon us does that help clear it up at all for you yeah that's my hard, that's my hard more? question for the day <laughs> i think that was a helpful answer yep thank you all right yeah, I mean, it does It does require a certain amount of education just to work with anything. I mean, right, uh, you know, words mean things, and we have to understand how language works. And, and, uh, and, and in part, what we're going to see even later here is this is kind of their whole issue with the theology of the opponents is that they don't they're they're ignorant fools it will literally even call them that um because <laughs> and has before when, when in other articles back right yes. yeah you know and and has called them that before because again they don't understand how language works and we still see the same tension going on and so yeah we need to have discussions on how do we do hermeneutics how do we understand texts as they are given to us and so that does require a little time little thought a little understanding a little education uh and so when we approach the book of concord this is why it's good to do it in community and with the help of your pastor and and other educated folks in these matters um, so that when we approach it we can say okay now now what does that mean for for me and and we can even talk through how that is um, but but again we, we just need to understand how language works all right uh, d- uh, any anything else before we kind of jump into more there all right I see pastor El shaking his head on Skype so uh, I'm gonna make him <laughs> go ahead and take on reading there Excellent. Taking up paragraph yeah. nine. All Set right. us up where we're at. We are at Apology folks. of the Augsburg Confession, Article 27, starting at paragraph number nine. Now, we are discussing the kind of teaching that the writers of the Confutation defend, not the question of whether vows should be kept. We hold that legitimate vows should be kept. However, we are discussing different questions. Can these services merit the forgiveness of sins? and justification are they satisfactions for sins 
Are they equal to baptism? Are they the obedience to basic rules and councils? Are they evangelical perfection? Do they have the merits of superabundance? Do these merits, when applied to others, save them? Are vows legitimate that are made under the appearance of religion merely for the sake of the belly and laziness? Are those true vows that have been forced either from the unwilling or from those who, because of age, were not able to understand this kind of life, whom parents or friends might be supported at public expense without the loss of their private inheritance? Are vows legitimate that openly come to a bad end, whether because they are not kept due to weakness or because those in the monastic orders are pushed to approve and help the abuses of the mass, the godless worship of saints, and the councils attacking good people. We have said many things in the confession about such vows that even the canons of the Pope condemn. Yet the adversaries command that everything we have produced must be rejected. They have used these words. Oh, you're stopping there. <laughs> oh, no, I would love to keep going. I'm sorry, I had to stop. For you're me. in the middle of a paragraph. Okay, <laughs> go to 11. It is worthwhile to hear how they distort our reasoning and what they mention to, uh, to support our own case, their own case. So we will briefly review a few of our arguments. In passing, we will explain away the adversary's slick logic in reference to them. However, this entire case has been carefully and fully discussed by Luther in his book on the vows of the monks. We wish to be seen as repeating that case here. That paragraph right. went to 11. It did go to 11. <laughs> yeah. I, sorry about that. I just no. wasn't sure uh, if you were stopping. This is the problem when I'm not in studio with you guys. So, all right. That, that uh, I kind of go crazy because you're not here to control me. Ha ha. <laughs> See, just like that. Because I do such a yeah. good job of it anyway. Yeah. All right. But getting back into here, so so they're they're reiterating those abuses and errors that have come out of this developed theology of monasticism as it is present at the time. And again, they they've they in what we read before the break, coming into paragraph eight, there, uh, uh, you know, it, it began in the schools. It it was a helpful idea, um, but this institution, this system, has developed up around it and there's a lot of errors with it and they list quite a lot in there right uh you know the abuses of the mass and and other things are all tied in with this the taking of vows that uh um you know are, are rather forced in and and just all a whole system that's really corrupt has built up around it and and so they're reiterating this point of how this distorted teaching of monasticism has developed pastor ill Melanchthon goes to length, though, to point out, we're not saying that all vows are bad. We're saying that the way that we're talking about monastic vows and the way that monastic vows are being used is bad. And so they're talking about the use of legitimate vows. You might think about wedding vows, for example, or a promise to serve your nation in the armed forces or to serve as a faithful witness in a court trial. All of those things are legitimate vows because we're told to be married, uh, be fruitful and multiply. We're told to uh, serve our country and to be faithful witnesses and uh, testifiers in court. 
but there's no establishment of monasticism in scripture. And when people say, oh, you need to take this monastic vow, and it makes you a better Christian, it makes you, and it makes your actions better than they would be without a monastic vow, that's when Melanchthon says, you're adding things to God's word, and you're trying to give yourself comfort and hope out of something that isn't out of God's word. That's a problem. And and that's the point that Melanchthon is making in these paragraphs. And as as Melanchthon is kind of, we're getting towards the end of the apology here. And if anybody has been with us through this whole time, or if anybody's been reading the apology and gets to this point, I, I like how Melanchthon just piles rhetorical question upon rhetorical question. Because at this point, if you've made it this far, it's very clear that merits of your works don't earn you anything like there there is no merit to your own works and so i like how he piles on these questions and it's obviously well no we've been over this well no that doesn't work either we've been over that and it's just one after another after another after another it's like he's he's finally just getting really really tired i'm going to give you 15 questions all at once and it's patently obvious the answer to all of these questions is no this isn't how that works Right, and it's it's because, like we were saying earlier, the difference, you know, is is what's the gospel? What's what does it come down to? Are you are you saved by your works and by by a vow that you made up, or are you saved uh, by grace through faith on account of Christ? And and as you said, that point has been hammered home in article after article after article, and so he just piles up these questions here, you know. Here's the point, you know, quit quit missing it. Listen to what we're saying. You're saved by Christ, not not by your works. So, so go ahead. So, and, and I think that's well put right there in the middle of paragraph nine. Do these merits, when applied to others, save them? And that's one of those rhetorical questions. But it is the obvious answer is no. Right? Uh, we 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 have made this point again and again. But we have talked about how they're building up also this point, and we'll pick up there with paragraph eleven about how there are legitimate vows and. Uh, so, so talk about that relationship just very briefly. How, how are we to regard these vows uh, that God does command? I mean, he commands us to take marriage, right? We've talked about this in the marriage of the priests as well. But uh, what, what do we have, um, you know, what's the relationship, I guess, is what I'm going for here in terms of how we, we view these vows as legitimate and, and yet also rightly understand that they don't save us. Well, I think one of the points that Melanchthon is starting to get to here, which he's going to really hammer um, as, he, as he further explains in additional paragraphs here, is that when, when you're convincing somebody to take a vow, they, they need to be convinced of the, the righteousness of it, of, of the thing that they're doing. So we've talked about marriage. You know, the marriage vow is a righteous in the sense that it's a good, good vow because God says this is how man and wife are supposed to be together. This is how this is supposed to work. So when you take a vow to uphold that, that's a good thing because God has established that. Here, he's listing, well, you're trying to get somebody to take a vow telling them that it's going to do this thing for them over here, but that's actually a lie. It's not going to give them this thing over here. It's not going to accomplish this thing over here that you're telling them it's going to accomplish. Therefore, you are deceiving them into making that vow. And if you have to deceive somebody into making a vow, then the vow is is not a legitimate vow because they're doing it under 
not not false pretenses of their own, but they're doing it under a false assumption that they think they're doing something other than what they're actually doing. And when you have to deceive somebody into doing that, well, you can't call that vow a legitimate vow because you've actually lied to them to get them to make the vow in the first place. You're, uh, you're taking something, I mean, you know, you're making it an idol. I think we talked a little bit about that idolatry earlier, and, and the vow then becomes an idol because you're taking something that's good, um, something that's a, a gift of God, at least in terms of we're talking about like marriage and those types of vows. Um, you've taken a gift of God, which is a good thing, but you're using it for a purpose that he's not given, um, and you're putting your trust in it. Now now you've made it into an idol, and, and that's where the the vow becomes illegitimate and it becomes idolatry because we're trying to use it to save rather than uh, finding our salvation in Christ and letting that that faith that we have in him then flow out into the good works we've we've reversed the order and so the vow becomes illegitimate so I, I guess for me this kind of boils back to the point that we made in summary that Pastor Apple really summarized well for us of the Augsburg Confession itself, that a good work is that which God commands, not works that we invent. All right, so so you made that point. But I, I guess this helps boil that out a little bit more for us, maybe not boil, I don't know, I have no metaphor for this, but it helps bring it out maybe more for us, is that uh, uh, it, it's, it's not even, and I think talking about marriage is really helpful to see this, it's not even that the work itself is the thing that we are saying you're inventing, because monasticism, again, at its very heart is Christian instruction, living in community, these sorts of things that this certainly God's word commends to us to do and, and how to live this way. But what we're saying is invented then is kind of what that produces, what living in a Christian community produces, namely that this gives you your salvation. Well, that clearly can't be right. And so I, I just kind of want to make that point so that we understand that we're not saying that they're they're inventing the idea of living in community as as somehow not commanded to us or given to us by God in his word. Clearly it is. That's the same thing with marriage. I mean, it would be really great if being married could save me because I need saving, right? And I'm married now. So this is good, right? Except for it doesn't save me. Nowhere in God's word does it say it saves me, right? It says it's good for me to live in, right? And and to be faithful in that relationship. And, and, and it's a wonderful estate given to us by God. But if we say living in marriage saves you or gives you the forgiveness of sins, which actually the Roman Catholics even still say that because it's one of their sacraments, right? Well, now we have a real problem because you have invented an outcome for it, something that it produces that God in his word has not given to us that it does, right? So that, that was kind of the point that I wanted to, to, to make tagging onto your idea there. Well, I think, uh, layman Slate. Well, I think Martin Luther is a perfect example of that very thing where he is somebody who what was a monk and like you said it, it's a good thing to to live that monastic life it can be a good thing but where it turned wrong is what he was told it would do for him and you see in his writings and his uh talking about his experience as a monk and the lengths to which he went to try and justify himself before god because he was told look if you live this life and do these things you will be justified before God. I mean, that's that's how it was laid out to him. He's a perfect example of, okay, it's it's not a a wrong thing to try and live a more ascetic life, to to live a life 
that denies yourself comforts. That can be a good thing. That can be a healthy thing for us to do. Uh, as hard as it is to say that as an American, because that's completely un-American for us to even consider that as a possibility. But, you know, all these different things were, were good, potentially helpful things for him to do. But the problem is in what he was told they were going to give him. And that was there was the lie and there was the abuse. And you look at his life and his utter anguish and despair at his inability to attain what he was told he could attain and that that's i think he's a great example right there of this very thing yeah it never comforted his conscience and yeah. that was the very thing that he was seeking he, he we all recognize somewhat by our nature and we've made this point before too that that you know the 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 natural law kind of preaches a message to us constantly i mean just the fact that death is awaiting all of us we, we have to reckon with that at some level right and if that teaching is out there well you know if you just go live in a monastic community that that problem is answered for you well what's the problem is that it doesn't actually answer it for you and so you still you have no comfort in your conscience and yet you keep working at it harder and harder and and everything else because you're seeking that which you need but not finding the comfort there and so yeah this this is why this teaching is so dangerous and and i guess i also want to at this point just pause here before we move on so maybe we've gotten this far in now to through 10 paragraphs and and maybe some listeners are out there thinking well this is all great this is Clearly, I mean, the, the monastic orders were big business in the Middle Ages at the time of the Reformation. And, and so if you have any kind of knowledge of history, you can see why in history this was included here. But what about today? How does this, do we still see this kind of tension with the monastic life and those sorts of things pulling on the church and on Christians today? Where do we see this? Bring, kind of bring it into context for us today. We absolutely see the same kind of move today. Uh, Really, to summarize the idea that uh, you can comfort your conscience through taking of a monastic vow, well, that's trying to turn a monastic vow into a means of grace, into an assurance of God's salvation for you because you've made this vow. But we still try to do this today in the church. Sometimes people, even Christians, might be tempted to try to barter and bargain with God. God, I will do this if you will do that. And we try to switch from being a receiver of God's gifts, a beggar before God, and instead we want to turn ourselves into a deal maker, uh, kind of a, a mercy middleman, and be able to receive God's gifts our own way. But we have nothing to bring to the table. We are beggars, we are dead in our sin, we are hostile to God. And out of that, we simply get the good gifts that God provides. We're not in a position to negotiate or to try to increase our standing in life by making any kind of a vow. But we still try to do it. Or we try to show God and others that we are a good Christian by the amount of times that we go to church or by how much offering we give or any of a number of other things trying to show God that we're a good Christian instead of simply being a good Christian because that's who Jesus has made us by his death and resurrection. Well, to, to bring it home specifically, you have two career paths before you, hypothetically. One, you can be a missionary, go overseas, spend your life spreading the gospel in the uh, 
Sahara Desert, living in the heat and the sand and the the dryness and, and all of that and the massive camel spiders. Or you can be a Wall, a Wall Street broker getting rich and living in the lap of luxury. Which one serves God? Which one is more pleasing to God? If you lean one way or the other in answering that question, this idea of monasticism may have snuck in a little bit into your thought process. There can also be other things in your thought process there, but consider monasticism as one of them. Talk that out just a little bit more, okay? <laughs> well, so I, I, I'm with you here, right? <laughs> but but I want you to flush it out a little bit more because where should we be starting? But then we only have in, two instead minutes. of just with one side. Well, well it's, I'm still, looking, you brought it up. Well, here's here's the problem. I'm starting with what I'm doing. I mean, I've already started off in the wrong because I'm looking at okay, God, what can I do in order to please you? What can I do in order to live a righteous life? I'm putting myself at the center of that question right from the beginning, and so. Even if I do go decide to be a missionary, if I'm doing it so that I can serve God and he can be pleased with me, it's just as bad as if I go to Wall Street because I want to be rich and live in the lap of luxury and not worry about anything else. The problem is I'm putting myself in the middle. Yeah, you're starting with yourself. That's why I wanted you to flesh it out okay. because you, you were right on target there. I just wanted you to bring it out <laughs> cool. to a point there and, and, and to bring it even to a more point. Obviously, who should we be starting with? Christ, right? Yeah. He is our righteousness. Why do I go love and care for my neighbor, whatever opportunities present themselves? Well, because Christ is my righteousness. I'm saved by his grace. And so that's how I live in love and service to my neighbor. We've made this point on so many articles. Pastor Apple, go ahead and uh, with about you know, 40 seconds here left in the show. Uh, just go ahead and put a point on it for us for the day. The, the good works that, that we are, that we do are those that are given to us by God. And it, it has to start with who he is and who he's shown himself to be in, in Christ. Um, he's the one who's saved us and he calls us to faith in his word. And with that faith, then we go forth and do the good works that he's given to us, not the ones that we invent, but the ones that he's given to us in Christ, in his word. And we know that they're good and pleasing to him because they come to us through Christ and Christ alone. Well said. Christ is your goodness, and that's how we live, and we believe that. We cling ever to it, and it's going to drive us into a whole lot of godly ways to live, whether that be in Christian community, uh, taking vows and, and legitimate vows, as we'll talk about next week. So please come on back next week as we talk about the difference between these illegitimate vows and the legitimate vows and how we live that out in our everyday lives. Uh, but it all flows forth from Christ, who is our righteousness. That's uh, a brief uh, beginning here to our Article 27 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on Monastic Vows. Thanks for stopping by today. Until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>